0: Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional health care for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a special masterclass on how to rewire your neurotransmitters for better sleep. My name is Britt with Forum Health. We are an expanding nationwide network of industry-leading healthcare providers who serve patients with a root cause approach to care. Our network of practitioners have decades of functional and integrative medicine experience drawn from areas in clinical nutrition, anti-aging, environmental medicine, chronic disease, lifestyle medicine, and much more. For more information, visit us at forumhealth.com. All right, let's get started. Our panelist tonight is Dr. Garrett Siebold of our Utah clinics. Uh, Dr. Garrett Siebold is a functional medis- medicine physician who earned his medical degree at Michigan State University. He helps patients unlock the body's innate ability for self-healing through diet and lifestyle modification and is passionate about preventative and regenerative medicine. Dr. Siebold specializes in autoimmune conditions, metabolic health, hormone therapy, sleep medicine, weight loss, and GI disorders. Welcome, Dr. Siebold. Thank you.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. Sleep. We all know it's important, yet so many of us fail to get the adequate amount of rest we need each night. And now the Sleep Foundation estimates that about 50 to 70 million U.S. adults are affected by some type of sleep disorder annually with that number predicted to rise. So in other words, we need help and we're glad you're here. So to start off, um, why is it so critical? Uh, Why is sleep so important and critical to achieving optimal health and preventing disease?
1: Yeah, so that's a a great question to start with, and it's a pretty deep question, to be honest. You know, sleep is really critical for so many aspects of our health. Um, When it comes to, like, lifestyle factors like sleep, exercise, nutrition, those types of things, really sleep's one of the most preeminent, probably the most important of all those. And it tends to be one of the first ones that we let go. When life gets stressful, things get busy, you get projects at work, family member, you know, responsibilities, things like that sleep tends to be one of the big ones to go first, right? So, sleep really can affect really almost every organ system in our body. So so many aspects of our health. So for example, like in our immune system, getting less than six hours of sleep a night can be associated with immune dysfunction and puts you at risk for certain cancers. Um, Also with our immune system, we see increased rates of inflammation, increased risks of upper uh, respiratory infections when we don't get enough sleep. Even vaccine efficacy, is is decreased when we don't get enough sleep right in our brains you know there's cognitive consequences for for not getting enough sleep there's even been links associated with alzheimer's uh disease or dementia uh, associated with poor sleep right um and i've told patients this for years but if you have any sort of mental health you know emotional struggle depression anxiety other things not getting sleep is like pouring gas on the fire i mean it just it just can really escalate things pretty bad we know in our in our hearts and like in relation to like cardiometabolic disease if you don't get enough sleep even within just a week's time um, your blood sugars can can start to skyrocket or may you not know, skyrocket but they start to go up and you, you develop this phenomenon called insulin resistance which is essentially um what is what leads up to type 2 diabetes right Blood pressure can go up without good sleep. Cholesterol goes up without good sleep. Without good sleep, cortisol is a big one. We look at like our adrenal gland and hormone function. When we don't get good sleep, cortisol goes up. And and acutely, cortisol is a good thing, but chronically, which most of us are kind of chronically sleep deprived, um, cortisol causes breakdown of muscle, cause storage of body fat around our waist, and it, it also contributes to that insulin resistance. Um, so it just, I mean, really. Poor sleep really affects so many aspects of our health and they're not always noticeable immediately, right? These are kind of consequences of long-term, you know, sleep deprivation and not getting what we need. So, boy, if I could prescribe one, one thing for most patients and at least most individuals, it's sleep.
0: It's sleep. So speaking on that, how much sleep does an adult actually need every night? And what would you consider uh, good sleep hygiene to be?
1: Sure. So adults, we know that our sleep needs and the sleep architecture changes as we age, right? So when we're younger, newborn babies will sleep up to 16 hours a day, even sometimes more. Um, and then as we age, adults should be typically getting about seven to nine hours of sleep every night. Um, the reality is most of us don't tend to get that. And we, we feel like, oh, I got six hours, five and a half. I feel fine. I'm, I'm good to go and again it kind of comes back to that the consequences of not getting good sleep are not necessarily always immediate some of them certainly can be but um it's something that tends to build up and cause struggles over time so i would i would say and studies show that really like 99 percent of people if not more really need seven to nine hours of sleep to to prevent any sort of like health or detriments to your health right so um sleep sleeps Pretty critical, and getting the, the right amount and, and good quality sleep is important. So, sleep hygiene is a big question. Um, I think most people tend to know the basics of sleep hygiene, like go to bed at the same time each night, get up at the same time each day, turn off the lights, bright lights especially, phones, screens, anything that emits blue light, you know, an hour or two before bedtime. I, I think a lot of people kind of know that, but what we don't always I think appreciate is that really good sleep hygiene starts from the time that we wake up in the morning and so and that really starts with getting sunlight into our eyes right so in your brain there's this little organ called the suprachiasmatic nucleus which you don't need to know that name we'll call it the SCN or it's really kind of like the master clock of our circadian rhythm and this is this is the clock that kind of manages all the other circadian clocks in our body right every cell in our body has different circadian timers on it. It's the suprachiasmatic nucleus that kind of manages all of them. And so the way that, that the SCN gets, um, gets programmed or set, is it's through light entering our eyes. And so if you look at the backs of our eyes, we have these ret- the retinas, right? Which is kind of like an extension of your brain. The rest of our brain is entirely encapsulated by our skull. You have two little holes where, with these projections coming out as uh, actual brain matter. Um, and when light stimulates those cells, the, the retinal ganglion cells, it then activates the suprachiasmatic nucleus and kind of sets the clock. Um, the circadian rhythm is actually intrinsic in each one of us, which is, I don't think we always understand is that it, we have our own individual rhythm individually, like within us intrinsically, it's the sun that kind of sets that pattern, right? And so the typical circadian pattern, and they've done, they've done this with studies, that will take people down these deep dark caves and they'll they'll monitor their their brainwave and other activities. And your circadian rhythm is actually about 24 hours and 15 minutes. So it's a little bit longer than the total day cycle, but it's the light that stimulates and hits the eyes that kind of helps to keep that thing set on the right timer each day. And so when you get up in the morning, one of the best things you can do for sleep hygiene is get some good bright sunlight in your face. Um, A lot of us will do that in our house, looking through the windows or on our commute to work, looking through the windshield, but in reality, the uh, the strength of that sun is about 50 times less it's, it's 50 times less effective to view it through a window or windshield than to get outside and just let that sun get in your face obviously you don't want to just stare at the sun where your eyes are burning on fire and you can't see that's not a good thing don't do that um okay. and then always the question is too what about now in the winter months the sun doesn't get up when i'm up most important is get into a room turn on the lights as bright as you can blue light in the morning is actually a good thing it again helps to kind of set that timer for us um, we don't want it at nighttime but in the morning it can be a very very good thing to help with our uh, with our sleep hygiene um, a couple other things just kind of interesting too is that um, there are also non-photic inputs that actually help to set our circadian rhythm and these are things that we do on a typical like daily repeatable um, cycle right so a couple things like that are eating can be one food intake Exercise can be a great way to to help set and help kind of establish your circadian rhythm. Um, And temperature fluctuations. Um, Temperature is really key to being able to sleep well Um, and and body temperature in particular. We know that in the evening time, um, our, our temperature around 4 or 5 p.m. tends to hit its peak. And then after that, the temperature starts to drop. And it's in that dropping temperature, which helps to stimulate some of the hormones, the neurotransmitters that also help to promote sleep. Um, Typically the average person to fall asleep, your temperature should drop about two to three degrees Fahrenheit uh, to really help you go to sleep. And then to stay asleep, we want our temperature to stay low. We see this in in women as they go through menopause, they're having these hot flashes, temperatures going up and down, causing them to wake up, kick the covers off, put them back on um, and really causing struggle to sleep well. So getting to sleep, we want our temperature to be dropping. We want to maintain that low temperature. And then typically around three or four in the morning, um, t- body temperature starts to go back up. And and shortly after that time, people start to wake up as core body temperature heats up. So those are some of the, the ones that we maybe don't always appreciate. There's certainly a lot of other sleep hygiene factors that we could certainly talk about more. We can talk about that for the whole podcast if we wanted, the webinar. But um, those are some of the ones that I don't think we we know as well or appreciate as well in their ability to um, to help promote good sleep every night.
0: Absolutely, so. yeah, I, I didn't realize about getting sunlight on your face, which I don't know if, if many people know of that trick. Um, that's really interesting just to, it really starts when you wake up. It's something I I didn't know, so um, Yes, It's great. not the
1: one to two hours before bed, it's right. time you get up, there's things to be doing all day long.
0: Right, that's so interesting. Um, sure. I'd love to know, can you describe for us the four stages of sleep that we go through every night?
1: Yeah, so sleep gets divided into kind of two main parts, two main types. You got non-REM, which stands for non-rapid eye movement sleep, and then REM sleep. Non-REM sleep, there's four stages. They may be combining stage three and four, but you get stage one, stage two, which is kind of like light sleep, and it's um, you're easily woken up during those times if you're in those stages. Then you drop into stage three and then deeper into stage four, and that's considered deep sleep. And so deep sleep, we see the brainwave activity start to change. And and so we'll do studies on people through like a polysomnograph or an EEG, which measures the electrical activity in your brain when you're sleeping. And so we see that when people are in deep sleep, these these brainwaves start to slow down and you get about two to four waves per second. Whereas compared to when you're awake, that's like 10 times, you know, it's about 10 times slower than when you're awake. And the main thought or function of this is that during this, repetitive brainwave activity just kind of floods from the front of your brain your cortex to the back of your brain and the thought is that during that time our body is kind of weeding out and removing any unnecessary neural connections it made during the day so when we're awake we're constantly we're seeing things we're hearing things we're feeling things we're experiencing all this outside world all these sensory inputs coming into our brain and our brain is forming these neural connections all day long it's in that first part of that non rem sleep that deep sleep that the brain starts to kind of weed out a lot of those unnecessary connections. And at the same time, it starts to transfer our memory from short-term memory storage to more long-term storage memory, right? And so we get down into deep sleep and then we'll be there for a period of time, usually about like in the first REM cycle, about 60 to 70 minutes. And then we'll start to come out, go to stage three, stage two, stage one, and then up into REM sleep. And that's the, the rapid eye movement. That's when we're dreaming. The eyes can be going back and forth. Um, and during that phase of sleep, um, a lot of really critical health functions are happening during REM sleep. REM sleep is really, really critical again for for memory and other purposes. Um, one of the big things is it's felt that during REM sleep, we're taking those neural connections that we forged from today and we're tying them into our past experiences, and it kind of helps to to complete a more, more perfect, a, a more clear picture of life and the world around us that we're living in. Our, and and so it, it's really Really, kind of a remarkable feat. Um, we also know that during REM sleep, um, you lose voluntary muscle tone, and, and the main thought about that is we don't want people acting out their dreams because sometimes dreams can be pretty, pretty wild, kind of out there. And, and and some people actually don't always lose muscle tone during sleep, and that can be a, a REM-related sleep disorder um, where people can kind of carry out their their dreams, and that can be can be a serious problem for the individual as well as Bed partners or whoever, so those are kind of the main, <clears throat> the main stages. You go through these REM cycles all night long. They typically last about 90 minutes per cycle. And, and one other, um, excuse me, let me grab a drink of water here. Um, Absolutely. One other kind of key feature is that as the REM cycles progress during the night, the first half of the night tends to be predominant by a lot of uh, deep sleep, that stage three, stage four, non-REM sleep. And as the night progresses, you get a lot more of the REM sleep, uh, which is that rapid eye movement dreaming sleep, and and so that has that can have clinical consequences when you're cutting your sleep short. A lot of times it's you're cutting it short on the end, which is that rapid eye movement sleep, the dream sleep, and you're not getting that that neural association from past to, to current experiences. And um, anyway, can have some comp- can have some implications in that regard. So.
0: Absolutely. You know, I'm curious, what are some common symptoms that may indicate you have a sleep disorder? And I'm sure there's some on that list that that might surprise uh, our audience.
1: So obviously the biggest ones, and these are kind of the symptoms of insomnia, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep through the night. Um, if you wake up at night, it's not uncommon, but typically should be able to fall back asleep within about 20 minutes. Um, excessive daytime sleepiness, and then sleep-related movement disorders like restless leg syndromes, where your legs are kind of kicking the movement. Or there's some other sleep-related you know, movement disorders as well. Um, those are some of the big ones that are kind of like the three broad categories, but other ones include like snoring, uh, apneic events or hypopneic events, where you actually kind of obstruct your airway and you're not able to, um, to to breathe for a period of time, and then you kind of startle yourself asleep or excuse me, back awake and, and clear your airway again. Headaches, if you wake up, uh, if you have a headache upon wakening, that can be a sign of um, a sleep disorder. Waking up unrefreshed, even though you're getting appropriate duration of sleep is is another one. Um, And just other basic things, like you have a hard time paying attention during the daytime, your reaction time and and responses are kind of slower, you have a harder time managing your emotions. Those can all be symptoms of of different sleep disorders.
0: The the one about the headaches waking up in the morning is really interesting. Because a lot of times we think, oh, maybe it's something we had the night before or, you know, a number of different reasons. But I think that's a very interesting symptom. I'm curious, what are the most common sleep disorders that you treat? And could you maybe explain what some of their possible causes could be?
1: Sure. So I think the most common sleep disorder most people complain of is insomnia, right? It's that difficulty falling asleep, for some people, it's more a problem with waking up too early and not being able to go back to sleep. But most people, the biggest trouble is, uh, is is actually going to sleep. And so some of the most common symptoms or, excuse me, causes of that can be a lot of psychiatric troubles like depression, anxiety, uh, mood or personality disorders. Um, another big combo for people is actually just worrying about waking up at night and not being, not being able to go back to sleep. And so you kind of start this this, this kind of cycle in your in your head that can actually lead to worsening insomnia um, and then and then there's all the, the typical life events the positive negative life events I got a new job I have some stress at work you know sickness you know bereavement things like that relationship struggles they can certainly be causes for for insomnia right another very common one is sleep apnea um, and we're seeing this more and more in our, our society simply because of increasing rates of obesity, right? So in sleep apnea, there's, there's different types of central and obstructive sleep apnea. Primarily, we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea right now, but obstructive sleep apnea is where um, for whatever reason you get airway obstruction, which then causes you to stop breathing for periods of time. And it, it may or may not be associated with your oxygen level dropping too low, uh, hypoxia. Um, and so you have these events periodically through the night um, and depending on the severity, the, the frequency of them, you know, you might get this diagnosis of sleep apnea. And so people that might experience this would be people that are having some of those morning awakenings uh, with, with headaches. You wake up on refresh, you have a hard time staying awake during the day, you snore at night, your, your partner says, hey, there's, you'll snore and you get kind of quieter and quieter and you stop breathing for a moment. Those are signs of sleep apnea, right? Um, and the people that are most at risk for that, very commonly typically have upper airways that are smaller and that could be because of you have really enlarged tonsils um, it could be because of a, be because of a malformation in your your jaw and your oral structures um, it could be because of just increasing neck girth or hypothyroidism and your thyroids enlarged you know that's another potential common cause right a big one for a lot of people too can be circadian, uh, rhythm disturbances. And so circadian rhythm is, this is, again, this natural rhythm that we have to want to go to sleep at a certain time and wake up at a certain time. And very commonly because of like jet lag, if you fly across two time zones, you're at higher risk for experiencing circadian rhythm. And and primarily it's from going west to east is the bigger struggle for people. We can also usually stay up a little bit later if you're coming east to west. When you go west to east, you have to go to bed earlier and trying to go to bed earlier. It can be disastrous. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. Another big one is um, is uh, shift work, right? So if you're on a shift that doesn't naturally align with your circadian rhythm, um, that's going to be a big cause for some some of the circadian uh, wake disturbance. Um, maybe another common one is restless leg syndrome, and and this is kind of there, there's kind of four clinical features of this, but in in essence, it's really you feel this kind of need this this almost painful. I got to move my legs and it's most commonly occurring in the evening hours, more so than during the daytime. As you get up and move, the symptoms will tend to get better. Um, and and so it can be kind of problematic for people and the causes of, of that can vary quite a bit. Uh, a common one that that a lot of providers don't always check is like iron deficiency. Um, some people just have idiopathic, um, restless leg syndrome, which means we don't know what's causing it. Um, For other people, it might be prescription medications you're taking. We know that certain medications like antipsychotic medications or SSRIs, which are commonly used to treat depression and anxiety, uh, can trigger this. Um, People with chronic kidney disease, um, cardiovascular disease, uh, women who are pregnant uh, can experience this. So there's certainly a number of different um, sleep disorders. I think there's like 80 diagnosable sleep disorders. They kind of get lumped into seven broad categories. Um, We treat a lot of those, and and the main things that we'll do is looking at, okay, maybe we may look at sending for a sleep study um, to get further testing and evaluation to see if you have sleep apnea or something like that. And and then from there, we might send you to a sleep specialist who will help you figure out how to titrate your mask and get the right pressure settings on your your oxygen and everything else, so.
0: That's great. I mean, that's great information. I didn't know there were 80 sleep disorders. That's a lot. Um, There's quite a few. That's quite a few. I'm curious about, you hear about neurotransmitters a lot, and I'm curious about exactly what are neurotransmitters and what role do they play in sleep, particularly healthy sleep?
1: Yeah, good question. So um, I think when we're talking about sleep, I try to tell my patients that it takes both neurotransmitters and hormones. Neurotransmitters are, are going to be these little neurochemicals in our brain that get released uh, at the end of one neuron, travels through the synapse, which is like the little space between the ends of neurons and then stimulates the other side, the, the neuron adjacent to it, right? And so we know that there are certain neurotransmitters that are are part of sleeping. So we have this area in our brain called the reticular activating system, which, which kind of lies between our midbrain at the base of our school and up to the cerebral cortex, which is the kind of the outer hemispheres of our brain. right? And, and these, the reticular activating system has four different areas that are really responsible for wakefulness. Um, the primary ones are going to be like hypocretin and rexin, which gets secreted from the, the lateral thalamus, um, and then it kind of turns on these other wakefulness centers and they release other neurotransmitters like histamine, acetylcholine, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, and these all help promote wakefulness, but there's one that really kind of helps shut them all off, and that's primarily GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid or galanin, um, and this is released from the hypothalamus, and this, this kind of exerts its neurons, or excuse me, it kind of shuts off a lot of these wakefulness centers to help us prepare to sleep, and so Neurotransmitters are really key. And so like histamine, for example, we know that if you get an antihistamine like Benadryl or, or um, Unisom, um, it's, it, it's actually a going to cross the blood-brain barrier, these, these initial ones do, and then it, it decreases histamine and it, and it causes you to, to go to sleep because histamine keeps us awake. Um, so neurotransmitters, there's quite a few of them. Um, there's and, and they have a lot of different effects as far as how they help activate the brain, help us to wake up, help us to get moving and to get going during the day.
0: Can you explain the connection? I know you just talked about hormones a little bit. But what's the connection between hormones and sleep, especially for those who are experiencing menopause, like you mentioned earlier, or even men experiencing andro, uh, andropause?
1: Yeah, so hormones are also key to sleep. Um, it's not just neurotransmitters we know. So a couple couple things here. So number one is it, at the end of the day, as the sunlight is starting to go down and we're getting less sun exposure, our eyes are, are perceiving that decreased light. It kind of sees the solar angle as far as where's the sun at in the sky. And there's actually, we look at the contrast between yellow and blue colors in the light, which then stimulates, again, those retinal neurons to, to start to release melatonin, right? Melatonin's kind of, it's a hormone and it's kind of like the shotgun starter of a race. It's the one, it's, it triggers the melatonin, and then it pulls the trigger, all right, let's start going to sleep. And so we'll start to see our core body temperature drop. We'll start, cortisol's already been dropping all day long, but cortisol should continue to drop. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it starts to stimulate that GABA, which is the, the one, the neurotransmitter that's gonna then um, kind of shut down the other wakefulness centers in the brain. And so melatonin is one of the key hormones to help us sleep. Kind of contradicting that is is cortisol. Um, We know that cortisol will will kind of peak around six, seven, eight in the morning, usually within about 30 to 60 minutes of awakening. And then cortisol should steadily decline as the day goes on. And as that cortisol is declining, melatonin conversely is starting to rise and allowing us to start to prepare to sleep. And so we go to sleep, we wake up the next morning, cortisol is on its way up, and that's what gets us awake and going. It's kind of that... that fight or flight i'm ready for the day I must take on the day uh, and it's it's a good it's a good hormone in the right amounts the problem with cortisol becomes most of us have it chronically high right and so those are two of the main uh, um hormones associated with sleep now we also know that testosterone levels and um, progesterone levels estradiol levels also influence our ability to sleep and we see this with women especially Um, as they start to go through menopause and and hormone levels start to drop. And uh, some of that sleep trouble more comes because of uh, the menopausal type symptoms they may be experiencing, hot flashes, night sweats, things like that, that kind of wake them up and and kind of disrupt that circadian rhythm. Um, But we see very commonly that when a woman comes in and and if it's indicated, we put her on progesterone and and sleep very very calmly just gets so much better. Testosterone, I've had a lot of guys that um, as we replace testosterone levels when they're low, and that's kind of that andropause, right? For men, testosterone starts to drop as we get older. Um, We start to help replace testosterone to healthy levels. Sleep also improves. Not just sleep, and maybe a big part of it has to do with more just, just general sense of well-being, their emotional well-being, anxiety, depression improve, and they just feel so much better. We see it all the time. Um, and when you see your traditional doc, and it's not a knock against traditional docs because I'm a family doc for eight years in small town Idaho, did all these things. That's kind of how we're trained, is you know, we don't always replace those. You know, there's only a couple indications and it's not mood or sleep. But I, I can't, I mean, full admission that people's sleep tends to get better as their hormones improve and, and get into a healthy range again.
0: That makes sense. I'm curious, do you feel like everyone should have a sleep assessment? regardless if
1: they feel like they're having a sleep issue or not um, you know if you don't have a lot of symptoms of of insomnia or sleep disturbance or, or you know have a sleep debt so to say i i can't say that i've ever gone for a sleep one because i haven't had those issues um so i don't know that i necessarily would recommend it for everyone um i certainly would say if you're having some of these symptoms that we talked about earlier if you're having a hard time sleeping through the night or you do snore um, or you're waking up fatigued and not well-rested, you definitely, I think, need to come in for evaluation. And whether that's like an official polysomnograph, you know, sleep study, or or more just some questionnaires and, and hormonal evaluation, neurotransmitter evaluation, you know, maybe that's what you need more.
0: So what do you think about prescription sleep medications? There's a lot of them out there. A lot of them have really bad sure. side effects. Um, sure. Are they okay to use? And more importantly, what happens if you use them long-term?
1: Yeah, so tough question a little bit. Um, This is the part I love about functional medicine is most functional medicine providers tend to have a traditional medical background. And so I've used a lot of sleep aids over the years, right? If I have somebody that comes into my clinic and is not sleeping, the most important thing is to get them sleeping. But I love the fact that, that my functional medicine background also allows me the opportunity to help them work on that lifestyle piece. Let's really nail out good sleep hygiene. Let's see how our exercise and activity is affecting our sleep. Let's look at our, our diet and see how that's impacting sleep or stress or relationships. Um, and then we do the in-depth hormonal analysis too, right? So um, I, I think that um, prescription medications certainly have their place. My, my concern is that there's a lot of short-term sleep aids like Ambien, for example, or some of the benzodiazepines that people tend to get hooked on, and then it's kind of a chronic use for them. There's been some literature, and it kind of seems like it goes back and forth a little bit. But there's some concern that benzodiazepines and those similar class of medications can cause um, uh, earlier onset memory loss, memory impairment, um, and, and there's studies that kind of go back and forth on that if it's a thing or not. Um, my opinion is that people are not sleeping because they have a deficiency of a benzodiazepine or a deficiency of Um, Trazodone or deficiency of Lunesta or whatever pharmacologic sleep aid they may be using. Do we use them short-term and and in the time while we're trying to heal the body and and get to the root cause of what's actually causing the sleep dysfunction? Yeah, I I use them a lot. Um, And they could be very helpful um, because sleep's critical. And if you're not getting sleep, uh, health is gonna really really suffer. So they have a place, hopefully not long-term, but they have a place.
0: Um, so at your clinic, how do you treat someone with a sleep disorder?
1: So uh, first thing is it's it's really an in-depth evaluation of their sleep. What are their sleep habits like? What are their lifestyle habits like, right? We kind of talked a little bit about those. I just mentioned them a little bit, but um, as a functional medicine provider, we really try to take a full approach of what's, what's triggering this, what's the root cause. Um, and so we'll look at different, um, different uh, questionnaires, like a morningness, eveningness questionnaire and look at what's your chronotype. Are you someone who should be going to bed earlier, or someone who can go to bed a little bit later? We can, we can also evaluate sleep needs through an Epworth sleepiness scale, which helps us to know, you know, um, it, it kind of provides a, a subjective quantification of, of the severity of sleepiness. Uh, if indicated, we'll look at sending someone for a sleep study. If you're telling me things that sound like, boy, you could have some sleep apnea, or maybe some other REM associated sleep disorder where a sleep study could be helpful to diagnose it, we'll, we'll refer you for that. Um, we do a lot of hormone testing and, and we'll do some neurotransmitter testing. I'll say that we probably don't do that as much as we do the hormone testing, looking at cortisol levels and, and sex hormones like testosterone, estradiol, progesterone. Um, but the, we'll do that kind of general workup initially and then, and then it kind of gets into the treatment plan. Um, always every visit is, is, how can we improve the lifestyle factors, right? I think most chronic illnesses, if we live the lifestyle that we're really meant and designed to live, most chronic illnesses would never be a, an issue for people. 80, 90% would be my guess. I don't have an exact number, but um, most would be non-issues. And so we really work on that every piece because in my mind, the goal is not to switch it from medication to a supplement for the rest of your life. It's to get to the root cause and let's, let's fix, figure out what in life is triggering this, this insomnia, the trouble sleeping, and let's fix it from there, right? So, we, we do some other kind of out of the box things too. Um, you know, definitely recommend a lot of meditation, uh, yoga nidra, which are some of these repeated scripts that can help you sleep. Hypnosis scripts can be very, very helpful, and you can find some of those online. Um, then we have some different um, devices that can help with sleep. So, one is like brain tap, another one is a dolphin vagal nerve stimulator. Um, both of these kind of help you to deactivate your sympathetic fight or flight system and activate more of that parasympathetic, the rest, digest, let's go to sleep, kind of calm calm life down, right? And then from there, we, we talk about different supplements, uh, magnesium threonine, excuse me, theanine, apigenin. We have some different blends like Rest Easy, Sleep Well, herbal calming blend that have different combinations of some supplements, some herbals, uh, herbal medications that help with sleep. And then ultimately, if necessary, we, we use pharmaceuticals as well um, prescription sleep medications. Um, so really kind of, we try to take the whole approach and ultimately just let's get to the root cause of the the sleep dysfunction and treat it from there.
0: That's great. So before we wrap up tonight, I would like to know what is one thing that you would like our audience to take away from tonight?
1: Um, good question. Um, boy, I, I think, I think what I just said is really would be the one big thing. Is that in medicine, we tend to have a, a, our training tends to lead us to make a diagnosis and prescribe medications, which typically are more aimed at managing the symptoms of the problem, right? And so I really encourage people to really try to look at and identify what the root cause of the issue is and, and treat it from there while you're treating the, the, the symptoms of it, right? Um, that makes us so we're not dependent on medications or supplements forever. It allows us to kind of live how we're really meant to live according to our physiology, our biology. And, and I think to me, that's what I love about functional medicine is that's, that's the goal. That's the plan. You know, as when I was in traditional practice, we'd see, I'd see patients and, and I love seeing my patients. I love the relationships that you have with them. Right. And it's fun to see Mrs. Smith every three months, but I can't say that I really found a lot of fulfillment in just refilling Mrs. Smith's antihypertensive medications or adding another one here, or opening the dose on this one there to keep her managed. You know, I I didn't feel like that was real fulfilling. I just kind of felt like I was a pharmaceutical rep. Um, So I I love functional medicine, that it really looks to, let's aim to get to the root cause of what's going on. Let's treat from there. We can help manage things on the side in the meantime, but really let's try to to focus on that root cause and and, and solve the problem there.
0: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, the goal is truly optimal wellness and health. Full body, which is amazing. Dr. Sebelts. Thank you so you much, this was such great information. I know personally for myself, hope, hopefully the audience feels the same way. Um, I would love to open up the class to questions from the audience. We'll probably take the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes to answer any of your burning sleep questions. Um, like I said earlier, we're gonna do our best to get to everyone tonight. And already before I even started, there's been uh, questions coming in nonstop. So we will try to, to get through some of these. Um, sure let's see there's a number of them Uh, somebody just wrote in what is the ideal room temperature for sleep
1: so ideally the room temperature usually lies between 61 65 degrees and kind of like i said the reason for that is a big part of maintaining sleep through the night is is maintaining that cooler body temperature they have some really cool like new tech out which can be really expensive but beds, mattresses, sleep covers that cool you to a certain temperature, blankets and sheets that can detect your temperature and, and kind of cool you, and you kind of sit, this is where I want my body temperature to be, and it, it can really kind of help keep you in line with that, which can really promote just fantastic sleep through the night. So a big part of staying asleep is keeping that room cool, usually 61 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit is going to be the general temperature for most people.
0: Okay, that's great to know. Um, Lisa wrote in, and we touched upon this a little bit, what are your thoughts on melatonin? I know some people say you can only take it for a month at a time, or the efficacy kind of fades over time. What are your thoughts on melatonin?
1: Um, Well, I know my my spouse uh, loves melatonin, and that sure does wonders for her. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, that helps. Um, Melatonin certainly can be very beneficial, um, especially for like those circadian uh, wake disorders, you know, where you're not falling asleep in, a, in kind of accordance with your normal biology, what your circadian wants you to do. Um, so people that travel, like with jet lag and things like that, melatonin can can help push that cycle forward to help you to get to fall asleep more quickly. Um, there's some uh, lesser evidence as far as melatonin maybe causing some troubles with, with um, promoting puberty too early in life uh, for kids, things like that. I would say that the, the evidence on that is pretty low. Um, not, not real strong, I guess what I'm saying. Um, I, I think melatonin could be used as a great sleep aid. Um, again, ideally, it, it's we're, we're really trying to manipulate our, our circadian rhythm primarily through light into the eyes um, and some of these other other factors that can help really kind of set that circadian so that you don't need um, to supplement with melatonin come nighttime.
0: Okay. That's great. So everybody, get outside tomorrow. Get the sun on your face. I know I will be. Yeah.
1: The earlier, the better.
0: The earlier, the better. And you said how long to do that? Like five, 10 minutes sunlight?
1: It kind of depends on the outside conditions. I mean, it's optimal for us to get a good 30 minutes of sunlight every day on our skin, just simply to help with vitamin D synthesis. Um, we know it releases neurotransmitters that help us feel happier, help cope with stress. But, you know, as much as even 15 to 30 seconds in the morning can certainly help to establish that, that clock. But typically, overcast times, excuse me, overcast days or winter months when it's not as, as, as bright and prevalent, you know, it might be more of like a 10 to 15 minute thing or, or 30 minutes. But um, even just a small amount really can make a huge difference to, to set that, that rhythm.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, Amy wrote in how late is too late to work out?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so the ideal times to exercise are going to be 30 minutes after awakening, three hours after awakening, around four in the afternoon. And the reasons for that are that first thing when you're waking up, your core temperature is going up. And it's during that upslope where we exercise during that, that as your body temperature is going up, it can help with with exercise. At about 4 p.m., your core body temperature tends to peak. And so exercising at that time can also be a very good time to exercise. After that, it starts to, it's called delay phase shift where you're kind of pushing your clock back because now if you're, if you're exercising later, five, six, 7 p.m., it can heat your core temperature up. And so it kind of delays that, that drop of your, of your body temperature which helps to induce you to go to sleep. And so I usually tell people, I, I try to quit exercising around four or 5 p.m., probably be the latest in the day that I recommend doing it because it, it can start to influence your sleep a little bit. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Elizabeth wrote in, I started to have insomnia when I was pregnant. I could not stay asleep. I'm still having trouble. Could this be a hormonal issue?
1: Uh, it definitely could be a hormonal issue. Um, my my home experience after five daughters is that uh, pregnancy is really disruptive for sleep for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Um, why that's still occurring, I guess, would be the question. Are you having pain when you're sleeping and it's, it's you know, hip pain in your hips or your pelvic region because of that it expanded and now it hasn't kind of got back to the right, um, right musculoskeletal, uh, I guess, relation where it should be. Um, hormones could definitely be a big one uh, uh, during pregnancy and afterwards. Um, it, it certainly would be worth looking into that. It, it's hard to say without more details of that history, but,
0: Another person wrote in: Does can sleep apnea run in the family?
1: Um, I don't know of any genetic, as far as links to sleep apnea. Maybe there is. I don't know of one, Um, but I would say it certainly can be indirectly uh, run in run in families, and that has maybe more to do with like body habitus um, and and you know that kind of increased neck girth, or you know I know a lot of lot of patients that you get kind of the same. Um, morphology in your your craniofacial structures. Um, a lot of people uh, will, will share those kind of similar things with tonsil ad, tonsillar enlargement, which could also be a cause for sleep apnea. So, I think maybe indirectly there certainly can be a um, you know it can run in families, but as far as like a genetic link setting you up for it, I, I don't know of one per se for sleep apnea. Okay.
0: Um, another person wrote in, "How do you get off of Ambien?
1: How do you get off Ambien? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, Ambien is is really meant to be used as a short-term sleep aid, right? It's really meant for like those you, you're traveling, you, you need something to help you sleep for a short period of time, and then we come off of it. But I will say that that's probably the most, in my opinion, misused um, sedative hypnotic, you know, medication to help people sleep, and so." How do you get off of ambient I don't know that I have a great answer other than kind of going back to how we, we talked about treating it. Um, number one, what's triggering the sleep disorder? Let's look at maybe adding some some supplements. Let's really work, work on sleep hygiene, uh, those things that can help trigger uh, our bodies to, to run within their normal circadian rhythm. Um, a lot of people don't sleep within their their chronotype. You know, Chronotype has to do with being like a morning lark or a night owl. Um, I think it's around forty percent of people are morning larks. about thirty percent of people are night owls, and about thirty percent of people fall in between and you can even further broaden it out to be like extremes on each end and so we live in a society where a lot of people who are night owls have to get up at six a m to get to work by seven or eight o'clock, and so they're living in this kind of lifestyle that's not really consistent with their normal biology what their what their chronotype wants them to do and so um, you know, assessing that, am I sleeping within my right chronotype? And if if not, maybe we got to try to figure out a way to let your boss get you to come in later or to figure out another way to, to really help so you can get within your normal rhythm. And so um, really that full assessment of, you know, too often it's, you see your primary doc and it's like, Hey, I'm not sleeping very good. We'll try this medication. And then you're on it forever. And we don't really dive into the deep of why are we, why aren't we sleeping? I mean, what's the cause? So
0: Uh, Here's a really good one. Uh, Napping. Is it good or is it bad? (laughs) Uh,
1: I live and die by the nap. So I'm a a huge believer of the nap. So um, yeah, naps actually can be really good for us uh, for a couple of things. And it can be bad too. Number one is when are you taking the nap? If it's late in the day, probably not the best thing. We'll talk to a lot of people that say they don't nap during the day, but then you talk to them and you get your, their sleep hygiene, that you find out that they're usually falling asleep while watching a show in the evening after dinner, before they go to bed. Well, that's a nap, right? And so that can can cause it cause us to have a hard time falling asleep later in life if we later in life later in the evening if we if we uh, nap too late in the day. Also, the duration of the nap is is really important. Most people, if you'll take a shorter nap, you know, a um, 10, 15, 20 minute nap and you don't go for like a full circadian cycle, um, generally that's not going to impact you nearly as much. If you, are, if you really are sleep deprived, you want to try to get those longer naps earlier in the, in the late morning hours, 10, 11 a.m., uh, to try to get them before it's too late. Otherwise, it will, can impact your, your nighttime sleep. I will kind of say this too. When you look at circadian rhythms, we all actually have a natural dip in our circadian rhythm in the afternoon, right after around lunchtime. And so we usually attribute that to maybe what you ate in carb heavy meal. Certainly that can influence it, but we definitely have a natural part of our rhythm our natural circadian rhythm is actually to, to try to sleep a little bit during the afternoon. Um, and it's, that's kind of called biphasic sleep. We're in this kind of world where we try to promote monophasic sleep, where you just go to bed at night, you wake up in the morning, that's all the sleep you get till the next day. Um, they had some really cool studies, you know, over in Europe, there's still some societies, cultures where that siesta, afternoon siesta is still very much a part of life. And, and as they've, as some of these cultures have started to adopt more of this monophasic sleep pattern where they've kind of kicked out the siesta in the afternoon and just sleep from night till morning, they've started, they've done studies on them and, and rates of heart disease and other chronic illness have actually gone up quite a bit, 30 to 67% on different different factors. And so um, there are studies that are showing this and that's, you know, Ever since I got out of high school and I could take a nap, in, you know, college and 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 through work, if I could take a 10-minute lunch nap, you bet yeah. I am.
0: A power nap, yeah. We need to bring. It it makes a all it makes
1: all the difference as far as energy, alertness, mood. I mean, for me, it's it's a lifesaver.
0: Yeah, those cultures have just, something right. <laughs> they You just it don't out. want
1: to get into the. You can't wake up and uh, as an hour later because then that's going to be a problem.
0: Right. Yeah. Then you don't know what year it is when you wake up sometimes from a nap like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right.
0: Um, what do you feel like is the best form of magnesium for improved sleep?
1: Um, So magnesium in general is great to help with relaxation. Um, It certainly helps a lot with constipation and muscle cramping and things like that. But actually to to actually look at what affects the brain the most of the different types, uh, magnesium three and eight tends to be one of the better ones, uh, one of the best ones uh, to get into the brain, help stimulate um, GABA and help to kind of calm, calm down the, the workings of your brain and just help you to relax and, and prepare to sleep. So I'd say magnesium three and eight, um, what would, would be the, the go-to on that one?
0: Okay. What about sleeping in on the weekends? That's something that most of us enjoy doing. Is that good or yeah. bad?
1: So good, not a good question. Um, so kind of going back to those, what's your chronotype? Are you a night owl or morning lark, right? And so I don't remember the exact numbers, but Morning larks, people that are like to go to bed early, get up early, tend to sleep on average weekend, weekdays and weekend around 7.1 or two hours a night. And it's pretty consistent from the weekdays to the weeknights. But those people who are the night owls are usually getting less like 5.6, 5.7 hours of sleep during the week, but then they tend to make up a lot on the weekend. So they're getting eight, nine, 10 hours on the weekend to kind of help balance out the need. I will say that When you have sleep debt, you can never repay the debt in full, right? It's always better to get good sleep every night. But if if you're someone who is probably more of a night owl, you're not getting the appropriate appropriate sleep that you need, um, then sleeping in certainly can be be very beneficial. When it comes to the weekend, for me, I'm I'm more of a morning lark. I'm I'm waking up by 6.30, no matter what, um, because that's where my body's used to, right? And so, um, and, and for most people too, that can also just be a sign that you're not getting the appropriate sleep you need during the weekdays too. And so um, really trying to maintain that strict same bedtime, same awakening time as much as possible is going to provide for the best best sleep and best health.
0: Definitely. I'm glad you mentioned the chronotype again, because you did have a question from our audience. They want to know, how do you figure out your chronotype?
1: So There's a pretty cool questionnaire called the morningness eveningness questionnaire. And I think it's 19 questions. And then depending on your total number of it, points at the end it will not be into one of those five categories um and and so i I think it's really critical i had a a patient just this past week um who's been struggling with her sleep and we do her, her questionnaire and it's you're very much a night owl like and you're trying to live this life where you're you can't go to bed until one or two but then you're waking up at five or six to get to work and and you're just you're just that's just creating so much stress on your body for so many reasons um, and just impacting your sleep. So that morning, this evening, this questionnaire, you can, you can just Google it, find a PDF of it and fill it out. It can be very helpful. Okay,
0: that's great. Um, you talked about the vagus nerve stimulator. Can you give a little bit more information on this?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, the vagus nerve is one of our cranial nerves. It's the 10th cranial nerve, It travels from our brain down to our gut. And so the way that vagal nerve stimulator works is there's an electrode placed typically on your ear. Um, and then down there's like another pad that goes down on your, your abdomen. So it kind of runs that normal length of that, that nerve. And it provides a low frequency, um, uh, electromagnetic wave that helps to stimulate the vagus nerve and promote more of a vagal nerve response. Um, and to kind of help pull you out of that sympathetic fight or flight. Um, there are certainly other ways to do that with like meditation and yoga, yoga, nitra, hypnosis, things like that, that all kind of work to calm your, sympathetic, this chronic fight or flight state that most of us are in, which is usually what's triggering a lot of the insomnia, um, um, but but that that's generally how it works. Hopefully, that's enough information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know there's uh, information we, on forumhealth.com as well.
1: Yeah, you can go shop forumhealth. I think you can find those there. We do them in our clinic. Uh, if people want to come in and just try it and see how it works, if they feel like it's something for them, they can they can they can try it out before they invest in one and buy one.
0: Uh, Um, Smitty wrote in, what are your thoughts on using a combination of CBD slash THC gummies for sleep? Is this helpful in the long run versus an actual prescription for sleep?
1: Um, You know, we certainly carry those in our clinic. I can't say that I prescribe a ton of them, um, but I I do know that, that there are certain types of people, certain class of people that do find benefit from them. You know, the reality is with most sleep aids, it's sometimes it's a trial and error. You know, there's there's some basic ones that a fair amount of people tend to respond to, and there's some that they don't. And, and so sometimes it's it's just a trial and error. I think C B D gummies um can be very helpful. I know we, we carry them in our clinic and, and we'll use those at times. Um it's it's really more of a trial and error. Again, is that better than a prescription sleep aid? Um I don't know. Maybe if you sleep Great. better with it, sure. <laughs>
0: Everyone's different. Um, speaking of sleep aids, uh, somebody wrote in about GABA. Um, you know, you mentioned GABA earlier uh, as a supplement. When is a good time to take GABA? Is it like 30 minutes before bed, um, sooner than that? You see,
1: um, when we're pre- prescribing GABA, a lot of times we'll have it in some of these different blends that will have like valerian root and chamomile and some of these other herbal, um, just herbs, I guess, that help help promote sleep, right? And so typically 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime is, is the ideal time to take that. Okay,
0: that's great. Um, let's see, we're probably gonna take a few more questions. Uh, somebody just wrote in, Dr. Siebel, do you treat narcolepsy? If so, what are the best treatments for someone unable to be on stimulants?
1: that's usually what I use, a stimulants.
0: I <laughs> usually use the stimulants, okay. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so there's a couple other options so there's a couple medications out there that really work on those wakefulness centers that help improve histamine um, uh, wakex i think is one of the names of one of those uh, there's another one um i think it's called sumorexin that works on more of the orexin um pathways that the that help actually promote or turn on all those different wakeful parts of the wakefulness i guess those four main wakefulness centers in our brain um, so, so those medications we we commonly use. Obviously, there's the traditional, um, you know, medications for narcolepsy, um the, the stimulants. Some people will use other kind of ADHD meds that might help a little bit. That aren't they're 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 basically in that same class of stimulants. They're very similar, um, but but might be just a little bit different than the modafinil and provigil, these other st- stimulant-based ones. But there are some other newer ones that that are not stimulants that will primarily work on uh, getting up the the, the histamine and the erection centers, and, and those are options that you have.
0: Okay. I'll tell you, I have a lot of questions coming in about all the supplements you mentioned earlier, um, which I know are on shopformhealth.com. Could you discuss yes. them again for us?
1: Yeah, so um, magnesium 3 and 8 is a great option. Um, 300 to 400 milligrams, usually about 60 minutes before sleep, um, helps with increasing GABA and turns off, helps kind of turn off our brain. Uh, Theanine, uh, usually 100 to 200 milligrams. Again, 30 to 60 minutes before sleep. Um, And even theanine sometimes is used during the day as well. They're starting to put a lot of theanine into energy drinks because it helps get rid of the jitters associated with all the the caffeine. Um, Apigenin, 50 milligrams is another one that that people will commonly use just before bedtime. And then some of the main ones that we carry here are kind of more of these like blends. So like one is rest easy. Um, Rest easy is a blend of um, valerian, passion flower, lemon balm, chamomile, uh, GABA, L-theanine, 5-HTP, which is one of the precursors to serotonin, and then melatonin is with it. We have another one called Sleep Well, which has more of taurine, 5-HTP, GABA, and then phosphatidylserine. Um, so there's there's those are some of the main ones. We have another one. It's an herbal calming blend, which is just strictly herbs. Um, and that can be very helpful too. So.
0: That's great. And
1: generally those are, those are pretty safe to try. I I will say that, you know, every supplement carries potentials for like side effects too. Um, It's, I think it's kind of ignorant to think that supplements can't cause side effects and only pharmaceuticals do. Uh, They both can. Are they less likely? Probably. But um, I really just encourage people when you're trying these new supplements, you gotta really kind of pay attention. You need to be a little more present in life and seeing how is this affecting my sleep? How's this affecting my appetite? How's this affecting my mood? It's not just a, you know, this is only gonna hit sleep pathways only and you're gonna have no other side effects. No, it could cause some digestive issues. It could cause other things. So whenever you're trying any of these supplements things, you really kind of want to be aware of how am I feeling? What is this affecting And, and, and is it working?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned caffeine so that's been a big yeah. question tonight that has been rolling in sure. when should you stop drinking caffeine um, if you're having a sleep disorder should you even be drinking caffeine and then another one is about alcohol um if you should be drinking that at night because i know a lot of people think oh alcohol will help me fall asleep but a lot of times exactly. it so could you touch upon yeah. the beverages that we sure. should so, be consuming
1: with with caffeine we didn't really talk about this much, but there's a whole other pathway that's really important to understand about sleep and it's called adenosine. And adenosine is this kind of like metabolic byproduct. And, and the longer you're awake, this adenosine is building up and up and up in your brain. And adenosine is what drives us to, to go to sleep, as, it, as one of these other factors that promotes us to sleep. And that's called sleep um, sleep pressure or sleep drive. And so adenosine is just going up and up. And the way caffeine works is it comes in and it binds to those same receptors that the adenosine binds to and it prevents the adenosine from binding to it and promotes us to be awake and alert. People respond very differently to caffeine. I know a lot of people that can have a a cup of coffee, a Red Bull, 30 minutes before bedtime, and they go to sleep and it it does nothing to them, right? But then there's a lot of people that are very sensitive and they don't metabolize uh, caffeine very well. I think the half-life of caffeine is around six to eight hours. Um, And and so really most people, if, if you're someone that uses caffeine and it does cause you to be awake, we usually recommend stopping by around two in the afternoon. Um, just gives you enough time to really help clear out that caffeine and then go to sleep at night. As far as alcohol, you kind of melt it on the head. Alcohol is very excessively used as a way to help fall asleep. Um, but when you, when you have alcohol on board, you have a harder time getting into that stage three, four of non-REM sleep, the deep sleep, and you don't get into the REM sleep either. And you're primarily just in this light sleep. So you're really missing out on the primary benefits of sleep, this restorative process that's supposed to to help us, I guess, regenerate and, and and get better, right? And so you're missing out on that. Another problem that comes with alcohol too is that usually once the alcohol starts to wear off, two, three, four hours later, you're, a lot of people are waking up at that time and have a hard time going back to sleep. So it's a band aid. It's not a very it's not a good one at all. Um, and I, I usually definitely recommend against it. Um, as far as for using to, to help with sleep, right?
0: Plus, it has a lot of sugar in it, too, which doesn't help. Sure,
1: um, you're right.
0: Those Z's, right? right? Um, one <laughs> final question coming in. Uh, this person said, I have a really hard time turning off all the racing thoughts in my head. Um, is there anything that you suggest? I know you mentioned meditation before. Any other tips?
1: Yeah. So, uh, sometimes for people that have struggled to fall asleep sometimes if your mind's just constantly going you can't shut it down number one did you did you give yourself time to unwind from the day if you're working till eight nine ten at night you're going to bed a half hour an hour later you probably didn't give yourself enough time to, to unwind and actually prepare to go to sleep right um, it also may be that your cortisol level may be up cortisol peaks at seven eight in the morning and then it should slowly decline until about 3 a.m when it starts to rise back up and so if you're you um, are If you're having a hard time shutting down at night, your cortisol levels may be going back up at night and making it harder for you to go to sleep too. Um, Some simple tricks, I mean, again, all those those, um, hygiene things are really key. Um, Journaling can be very helpful. A lot of times people that can't turn off their minds, if they can just write it out, put it on the paper, that can be helpful. If you're kind of constantly obsessing over um, what I got to do tomorrow, um, you can, you know, I recommend people just get out of bed and write it down. Um, if, if you've been in bed for about 20 minutes and haven't fallen asleep yet and are not really very tired or feel like you're going to fall asleep anytime soon, you usually you should get out of bed and go do something that's not stimulating that helps you kind of calm down and start to relax. Um, heat at nighttime can actually help you fall asleep. And this, this is maybe a little counterintuitive, but oftentimes at night taking a warm bath, it heats up your, your, uh peripheral you know your outer body right your skin and the outer appendages and it increases blood flow to those areas and that increased blood flow actually shunts blood that way and heat that way so it actually cools your core body temperature so taking a bath 20 to 30 minutes a warm bath at night time can really help stimulate that um that that drop in your core body temperature to help you kind of shut things down and go to sleep at night um love meditation You know, I I think we all need to do meditation. We don't do very good job with meditation in the United States. It's it's very much a Western thing, and a very much a very helpful and good thing. I think if you can learn that skill. Um, Those are some basic thoughts. Hopefully, that something there was helpful for you. That that uh, magnesium three and eight really helps to um, turn off your brain. There's a process in your brain called duration path outcome um, DPO centers, which which kind of help us not help us, but kind of cause us to kind of get in these loops of constantly thinking about this and this and just over and over and over, it's repetitive thinking. Um, So magnesium three, and it can help turn that off as well. Okay.
0: Well, this has been wonderful information and we really appreciate your time and your expertise on this topic. Um, And of course, to everyone who joined us this evening, hopefully we all get a little better sleep tonight. Um, If you'd like to learn more about treatment for your sleep disorder, visit us at forumhealth.com or you can call us at 855-467-5922. Again, that's forumhealth.com and the number is 855-467-5922. Also, in the meantime, make sure you connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We have tons of great content uh, on all of those channels, a variety of different health topics. So we would love for you to go there and, and connect with us and check out uh, all that we have. Again, Dr. Siebalt, thank you so much and to everyone who joined us and I hope you have a great night and a good sleep.
1: Thank you so much, good to be here.
0: Thank you so much, good night. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com